You're listening to audio from Mosaic Boston Church. If you'd like to check out more resources, learn about Mosaic Boston and our neighborhood churches, or donate to this ministry, please visit mosaicboston.com. We're in our series, Reclaim, and we've seen how God created the earth good. And then by page three of the Bible, we had already messed it up, and things went very bad. And, um, and then we see today that we're even still messing it up. But we also realize that through this whole thing that God is reclaiming his good intention for creation, which gives us hope. And this has been our theme verse, Revelation 21.5, right at the end of the Bible. So we talk about messing up in the third page of the Bible, right toward the end of the Bible. Revelation 21.5 says this, then the one seated on the throne said, look, I am making everything new, that there will be no more tears, no more sadness, no more death, because Christ comes in and makes everything new, reclaims everything for his glory. It's been a really great series, and this is the last of our kind of work mini-series inside this series, if you will. But uh, next week, I'm really excited about next week. We're going to be talking about reclaiming identity and who we are um, as people and as followers of Christ. In, In our society today, there's an identity crisis. So many people want to search to find themselves, who they really are, and they go on, a, they go on uh, trips to go find themselves and all these kind of things. We're going to look at Ephesians 2 and explore who we really are in Christ and how that changes the paradigm of our lives. And so I'm really excited to talk about that next week. But this week, we're going to talk about work one more time. As I've studied it, it's been helpful for me to get a theological framework of why we do work and how we should do work. So I hope it's been helpful, encouraged you, but also challenged you. I hope it's not just left you where you are, but challenged you to push forward in your walk with Christ. All right, question. Have you ever had a really bad job? Really bad job. Okay. Most people can point to that one job that was like just really bad. Well, I've been thinking about it a lot this week as I was trying to figure It's like, what was like the worst job I ever had. So this is maybe a little out of the ordinary, not what you would expect, but it was actually one specific aspect of a job that I had. I was, see, when you get your master's, you will do um, a lot of things to make some money. And so I was at seminary, and I was trying to make some extra money, so I became a balloon man, a balloon animal guy, right? Um, (laughs) I don't know why that's so funny. I'm just kidding. But I, I did. I, that's what I did. So the job itself wasn't that bad. It paid pretty well. What I would do is the company I worked for would have you go to a restaurant. The restaurant would pay the company. So um, they would pay the company $100 or something. I don't actually know what they paid the company. And, and the company would then get me to go for free. And so I would show up with balloons and ready to twist uh, for free. Now, what we did is we wore a little button on our lapel that says, and i got to say this really slowly, and you can laugh at this one too. I twist for tips. I twist for tips, okay? And so they trained us on how to make this button more visible so people would give you tips because that's how we earned our money. So you'd make a balloon and you'd get a tip of a dollar or two. And so if you did like 20, 30, 40 tables, you could make a decent amount of money in about three, four, five hours. And it was, it was a good way to make just a little extra cash while I was getting my... Um, uh, my seminary degree. So anyway, there was this night, right when I started, I was really stupid. And there, what parents see, if they were going to call me to come to a birthday party, so if you were to go to a birthday party and be a balloon man, and maybe you've 
seen this before, it's going to cost you at least $200 probably for a couple of hours for them to come because it's a premium. And so if they were going to invite me to their party, they would pay me $200 to come and do balloon animals for them. But what parents figured out was is the balloon man was always at the local pizza shop on Friday nights. So if they planned their party at the local pizza shop, I could come to their kid's birthday party and they could pay me whatever they wanted. Okay, so if you've ever read Dante's Inferno, (laughs) uh, there's... uh, Technically, 10 circles to hell. I believe that uh, balloon-making impromptu birthday parties for kids is about the 11th circle of hell. (laughs) Anyway, and so I walk into this room, and it is a party, and they are eating cake, and the kids are having a good time, and the parents are drinking too much, and um, I start making balloons and expect, you know, make a few tips, whatever, and... and, uh, I end up staying there for two and a half hours making these balloons. Finally, I get done. I've like almost used up all the balloons in my belt that I had. And the dad comes and says, hey, come here, come here, come here, come here. He says, thanks so much. Thanks so much for coming. We were hoping you were going to be here so that you could come and do the birthday party for us. I was like, oh, great. And he pulls out his wallet. He reaches in there, and he goes, and he grabs a $10 bill, and he hands it to me. And he says, he says thanks, man. And I was like, oh. And <laughs> it's moments like that. Well, just first off, the balloons probably cost me more than $10 that I used that night. They're not cheap. And it's moments like that. You wonder, am I, what, does this have purpose? Does this have any meaning to it? And you've, I know you've had jobs like that too. Things that you've done that you're like, does this have any true meaning to what I'm doing? Now, I can say that Jesus had to change my heart a little bit that night because I was crazy on that guy had Jesus not been working in my heart. So I guess God was doing something through. He's at least teaching me patience. But regardless of whether you love your job or you hate your job, there comes a point in everyone's work that they have to decide and they have to think and they want and need purpose in what they do. The average American works 47 hours a week. To that, you might be thinking, I work a lot more than that. And maybe you do. That's average. So there's people who work less and there's people who work more. 47 hours a week. That comes out to 2,444 hours a year. That's a lot of hours in the office. And also, 97,760 hours in a lifetime. Don't get depressed. But that's over a decade of your life spent in the office. So one, if you live to 70 which, you know, we hope we all do, one-seventh of your life at least, a little more than that, would be uh, spent in the office. So we want meaning in those things. And so sometimes what we do is we reach out. We say, so I got all this time at work, and I'm going to reach out, I'm going to volunteer, I'm going to do charity work, I'm going to go to church, I'm going to do all these things. So the average person spends one hour in church, which is normal. I mean, that's about what service lengths are, one hour, right? Uh, Unless I'm preaching. No, I'm just kidding. Um, So... Uh, one hour, and then the average person spends one hour in volunteering every week. So I assume that probably some of that has to overlap. We'll just be generous and say everybody spends about an average of two hours a week volunteering and going to church on, and, and that kind of thing. Which, when you think about 47 versus two hours, makes you think. Now, even like Navy SEAL Christians maybe give a whole six hours. If they go to a community group and they show up early to church and stay late, but it still doesn't even compare to the 47 that you're putting 
in at work. Now, don't say that to make you feel guilty. You're sitting here thinking, oh boy, here he comes. He's gonna say, I need to spend like 50 hours in church and I should double my, or, you know, double my time, as much time as I'm spending at work, I should spend in church. And I'll say, that's not what's coming. <laughs> that's not what's coming at all. But what I am saying is that if those 47 hours don't matter, that the work we do for God is only the work we do for charity and to love others and those things, and the work we do at our job isn't for God, then that is highly depressing. And we have wasted our lives over a decade of our lives, and we will one day retire and then die. Thankfully, that is not the vision that the scriptures have for work. That there is meaning for the 47 hours a week that you spend at work. And that should give you immense joy. And I hope to unpack that today as we dive into the sermon. So let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, through this worship service, God, I pray that you would uh, work in our lives, God, that you would start in, in me and that you would change my heart, you would work in the lives of those that are here today and change their hearts, God, that we could connect with you in a way we never have, maybe some of us never have before. God, for some, maybe it's a reconnection with you. God, for others, this is just a renewal of the relationship that they have ongoing. But God, I pray that today, it would all be focused on you. The things in your word would be clear to us. That we would understand it, but then also obey it. God, we lift all this up to you today for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. So the first thing we notice about work in the scriptures is that we have an eternal calling. So the first point today is your eternal calling. Have you ever heard a statement like, you don't choose to be a teacher or a doctor or a police officer or a fireman or, or whatever. You could think of a million other things. You don't choose it. It, it chooses you. It calls to you. It's, it's a calling. And some people will say things like, I'm meant to do, which has a sense or a tinge of it's a calling. It's something that you've been called to do. Or this, they'll say, this is my calling, what I do. And they think of calling as something that happens internally, but that's literally impossible. All right, so have you ever had, uh, have you ever tried to call yourself before? Anybody call yourself before? It, it doesn't work uh, very well. So if you were to call yourself, what happens is you put your phone together. It's fun to do, you know, you put your phone together, you turn it the other way, and what happens? Anybody know? Incredible feedback loop. It just, woo, 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 woo. It just keeps getting louder and louder and louder and louder because you can't truly call yourself. There's just, uh, there's just a feedback loop because it becomes inwardly focused and the phone's just spinning that signal back and around uh, and around and around and it gets louder and louder until uh, you just can't take it anymore and then you have a good laugh. But when we have this sense inside of us that calling of what we do happens inside of us, we create a feedback loop in ourselves. That everything becomes uh, on my terms and about how I want it to be, that I'm the one calling, that I, and, and when I call me, I always agree with me. And it just becomes this unproductive feedback loop. And what we find is, is that when we base our um, identity, which we'll talk more about next week, but when we base our identity in our thing that we feel called to, when we base who we are in what we do, we wake up and realize that what we do isn't fully satisfying us. See, the truest calling must happen outside of us. It must be from an outside caller. It's only when there's a higher caller that you can actually have a higher calling. 
The word vocation, when we think about the word vocation, we kind of think it's synonymous with job or, or the work we do. But it actually comes from the Latin word vocatio, which means to call. It was originally used in the Catholic Church for those that were called into ministry. It was their vocation. It was used for priests or nuns or monks or, or whatever. They were called in the ministry. But in the Reformation, the reformers like John Calvin and Martin Luther started to see calling as different. That calling wasn't just something that happened for priests and for, and, and for those in, in the uh, in, uh, part of the cloth. That it was something that happened to everyone who was a follower of Christ. That people weren't just called to be priests, but they were called to be followers of Jesus. That in, that in a sense, that each follower of Christ is a priest. This is what Ephesians 4.1 says. Therefore... I, the prisoner of the Lord, urge you to live worthy of the calling you have received. The calling for the Ephesian church is the same calling that the Jamaica Plain Church has. It's the calling of Jesus Christ. That Christ has called us, and as much as we decide to follow him, Christ has also called us to follow him and passionately, we were passionately pursued by Christ. Let me read to you 1 Peter 2.9. But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his possession so that you may proclaim the praises of the one who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Sort of like two, two lovers where the, uh, the boyfriend kind of chases the girlfriend and woos her. Maybe that's kind of an old term, old timey term, but woos the girlfriend that one day he's confident that he's wooed her enough and he's bought her enough flowers or whatever and kind of brought her along in the relationship. The relationship has grown. They've got to know each other, all these things, that one day he's confident enough that he can get on one knee and he can propose and he can say, well, you know, will you marry me? And she will either say yes or no. And if she says yes, in that moment of saying yes, she has uh, made a decision in a moment, but that moment happened a long time before. That it was this process of bringing her to the point where she would say yes. So in the process of coming to Christ, in the process of becoming a follower of Christ, all of us are being wooed by Jesus. We are being brought to him. That today maybe you were brought by a friend or or maybe you just came to church because something happened or maybe you are here because uh, you know, it reminds you of a, uh, of a better time in your life and you just need to, needed to come to church, whatever it is, in that process, Christ is wooing you to himself if you don't already know him. And he's calling you to make a decision. So you've been called to know, love, and follow Jesus in whatever you do. So we talk about calling, we talk about being a priest and is it my calling or what? Do I believe that I uh, was, a call, uh, was called to be a pastor? Absolutely. I believe that I was called to be a pastor, but my first and greatest calling isn't to be a pastor. My first and greatest calling is to follow Christ fully through being a pastor. It's subtle. You see the difference is that I wasn't, my greatest calling is to follow Christ in whatever I do. And in my case, it's to be pastor, but in your case, it may be to be a teacher, to follow and glorify Christ in your life through being a teacher 
or to follow and glorify Christ through being a snowplow or a lawyer or a barista or an engineer, whatever it is that God's put you in, your greatest calling as a follower of Christ is to follow him and lift him up and glorify him in that job, whatever it may be. I love the way John Ortberg says it. He's a pastor at Menlo Park Presbyterian Church. Um, Dr. Ortberg says this, people with the strongest and healthiest sense of calling are not obsessed with their calling. See, that's when we base our identity on the job itself. They are preoccupied with the caller. They're preoccupied with the one who has called them. Your calling in life is not simply about the work that you happen to be doing, but about Jesus and the one who has called you to follow him inside that work. And you might be thinking, I don't, how, is Jesus, how does Jesus use my work? That's a good question to be thinking. Let's keep thinking on that. So do a good job. Uh, so, uh, so a good job is um, not necessarily a job where you have the deepest passion, the deepest sense of purpose or calling inside of it. You feel like, oh, this is my dream job. This is what I was made to do. And when I get here, I'm just in my lane and I just flow. And that's amazing. When you can have that job, that's an incredible job to have. <laughs> There's no doubt about that. But a good job isn't necessarily that. A good job is one that's honest. It provides for you. It contributes to society, helps others. We'll get into that in a little bit in just a minute. And you're pretty good at it. <laughs> like you, you can make it work. You can make it happen. If you meet those criteria, regardless of whether you're in your sweet spot or you're calling or you're changing the world or not, God can use it. Whatever you're in right now, God can use where you are for his glory. The fact that we live in a post-garden society, which you can listen to the first sermon in this work series if you, if you want to know more about that. Basically, God created everything good like we talked about, and then we went away from that. And so work became drudgery and became toil. And the fact that we live in a post-garden society, Garden of Eden society, means that sometimes we are going to have jobs that we hate. Sometimes we're going to walk into that balloon party and make balloons for two and a half hours and be absolutely miserable or whatever it is for you. And there's many jobs that are worse than that. But whatever it is, you know, there are going to be days like that. But the fact is in whatever we do, God can use it wherever we are. So for the Christian, your job is not your calling, but your truest calling is to Christ, to follow him. But following Christ doesn't end in the vestibule of your workplace or in the parking lot of your workplace. Following Christ follows you through the doors of, your, uh, of where you work because you have an eternal boss. Point number two, your eternal boss. I'll read to you 1 Corinthians 15, 58. Therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the what? What's it say? The Lord's work, the Lord's work. Because you know that your labor in the Lord is not in vain. So we read a verse like that, and the first thing we think again, at least I do, is I think, oh, being like a missionary or something. That's, that's the Lord's work. You know, the Lord's work's when we go to church and all these things. But again, that isn't what the Bible has in mind. Um, we've gone to this next verse every week, but this, this next verse is so helpful when we're trying to understand the who of work. Who work is for? 1 Corinthians 10, 31, Paul says this. So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, which includes the work we do, 
whatever you do, do everything for the glory of God. See, for the apostles, the Lord's work wasn't only our church work, or our charity work, but the Lord's work was everything that the Christian does, or should be everything that the Christian does. That in every action that we take, whether it's at church or whether it's in the office or whether you know, it's on a sales call or at the banker or if, it, if it's even in the classroom, whatever we do, we glorify God through those things. Again, in 1 Corinthians, Paul gives this idea of, of quality work. It says, according to God's grace that was given to me, I have laid a foundation as a skilled master builder, and another builds on it. But each one is to be careful how he builds on it. For no one can lay any other foundation than the one that has been laid. The foundation is Jesus Christ. If anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, costly stones, all things that don't burn up in fire, wood, hay, or straw, all things that do burn up in fire, Verse 13, each one's work will become obvious. For the day will disclose it, because it will be revealed by fire. The fire will test the quality of each one's work. If anyone's work that he has built survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will experience loss, but he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. And there is a lot there that we can get into theologically. But the point that I want you to take away from today is that Christ is the foundation of what we do. And we do it with quality because one day the things that we do will be judged, whether they were with quality. And what is with quality? Quality work is work done wholeheartedly for Christ. Quality work is work done wholeheartedly for Christ. And so the things you're doing, one day when they're looked at and placed through the fire of judgment, will they come out on the other side? Or will they burn? But why? Why is good work what we need to have? Is it an end to itself? I would say no. Well, doing good might have some satisfaction for a moment. You do a good job, you say, ah, it looks so good. I'm so happy that this happened. I'm so glad that I did this. It was a great project, whatever. You know, you think, you know, uh, get some satisfaction from it, but it has to have a greater purpose beyond itself. If it doesn't have a greater purpose, then it's just gonna fade. It all comes back to the garden and subduing and ruling the earth, which we talked about in the first week. We do work as cultivators of God's creation. And when we do good work for Christ, we are expanding the boundaries of the garden and we are loving our neighbor better. This quote from Martin Luther might clear it up a little bit. If he is a good Christian tailor, he will say, I make these clothes because God has bidden me to do so, so that I can earn a living, so that I can help and serve my neighbor. When a Christian does not serve the other, God is not present. That is not Christian living. Martin Luther is referring to the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, and mind, and to love your neighbor as yourself. Those are the two greatest commandments. And so he's saying that when we work well, we love our neighbor well. That it's not just about the work itself, but the work has value in the fact that it is doing what God commanded from the beginning. It is cultivating uh, a, a good creation and cultivating um, people and community. community. 
So the tailor makes good clothes because his neighbor needs to wear good clothes and needs to stay warm and needs to not be itchy, you know? That's why the tailor makes good clothes because he wants to make quality work because he loves his neighbor. So we give ourselves to quality work, work that pleases and glorifies God. And we get back to the essence of what God intended for work at the beginning of the scriptures. The, the idea that we are uh, subduing, we are molding creation and making it, uh, making God's good creation um, go farther out into the, into the world. So, but that means that all of our work, the logical conclusion of that is that it's not for a human boss. The logical conclusion of that is that our greatest boss is Christ. I am, um, so I, I always go back to this. I'm sorry I did this whole series, but it, it was a really formative time in my life, and, um, and, and uh, I was there for a lot of years. So anyway, so I, when I worked at Chick-fil-A years and years ago, um, we had this manager that was just like the worst, and uh, she had no idea how to deal with people. She had no communication skills. She yelled at everybody, and then when we were doing all the work, she went back to the office and just like, just hung, put her feet up and read magazines or whatever she was doing. We have no idea because we were actually working. And she was just like not a good boss to have. And there were moments when I'm sitting there, you know, breading chicken and putting things into the chutes so people can eat that I'm thinking to myself, I'm thinking to myself, I'm working for Jesus. I'm working for Jesus. I'm not working for her. I'm working for Jesus. And that was really tough. But you've probably had bosses like that before. Bosses where you thought to yourself, this person is not a good boss. But in the midst of that, and in the midst of when you, it gets tempting to be spiteful and just do a bad job or, or not give it everything you have because of how poorly they're treating people or treating you, you say, I'm not working for them. I'm working for Christ and I'm loving my neighbor. I'm making this sandwich because that person needs to eat and I need to feed them. And I'm working for Jesus and being a good example of what he's done in my life. Ephesians 6, 5 through 8 says this, don't work only while being watched as people pleasers, but as slaves of Christ or servants of Christ. Do God's will from your heart. Serve with a good attitude as to the Lord and not to people. Knowing that whatever good each one does, slave or free, he will receive this back from the Lord. Truth is, whether your boss is wonderful, and maybe you have a wonderful boss now, and that's amazing. Whether your boss is wonderful, horrible, or somewhere in between, if you're a follower of Christ, your truest boss is not that person in the office or wherever. Your truest boss is Jesus Christ. And you do your best work for him, no matter how you feel about the other person. Charles Studd, a British missionary, said this, only one life which will soon be passed only what's done for Christ will last. The work we do, the 47 hours a week that we are in our jobs can and should be for Christ, that it may last. And this is what brings us to our next point, that work is not just for the here and for the now. The work is something that has eternal Significance. This is your eternal work. Often we think about heaven and we think about uh, well, when, I'm, when I die, I'll go into the great beyond and we'll, it'll be like vacation forever and we'll, we'll travel around in our little RV and collect seashells and wear Hawaiian shirts because that's how I imagine retirement. And, um, 
you know, and, and just, you know, hang out on the beach and all these good things. And that's going to be heaven. And that's actually not what we even see in the scriptures. That in, in 1 Corinthians, um, the same passage we were going to earlier, Paul is in 1 Corinthians 15, he's giving the importance of the resurrection. He's saying how important the resurrection of Jesus Christ is to the faith of the Christian. That as Jesus has risen, if Jesus has not risen from the dead, then we might as well just pack up and go home because this is all useless. Because if Jesus hasn't risen from the dead, you're not going to rise from the dead. If you're not going to rise from the dead, then Christianity is nothing. And then he says, and he revels in the idea of the resurrection. And he says, but Jesus did rise from the dead. So Christianity is everything. Because Christ has risen from the dead, we will rise from the dead. And because of that, everything that we do here has eternal significance, forever significance. And so that gives us hope. This is what he says. He comes at the end. He, talks, he starts talking about work and labor. At the end of 1 Corinthians 15, this thing on the resurrection gets to the end. He starts talking about labor and work. He says, therefore, my dear brothers and sisters, be steadfast, immovable, always excelling in the Lord's work. Because you know that your labor is in the Lord is not in vain. That the work we do for Christ doesn't stop here. But because of the resurrection, our work has purpose and eternal significance. When John has his vision of heaven in Revelation, he doesn't picture disembodied souls floating around in clouds and playing harps. He doesn't even picture a vacationing uh, group of people hanging out on the beach or anything like that. He pictures a beautiful and bustling city, a new Jerusalem. This is what it says, Revelation 21, 1 through 2. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth. So this is the reclaimed, renewed heaven and earth. For the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. At the end of time, God will restore the earth to his original intention in the beginning. In the Garden of Eden, what was a garden in Genesis chapter 1, in Genesis chapter 2, and then in Genesis chapter 3, everything messed up. And then at the end of the time, God will bring it all back. He'll reclaim it all. And this garden will become this beautiful garden city, this, this civilization of God worshipers, and everything will be reclaimed. And it won't be a place of eternal vacation. It'll be a place of uh, perfect existence where we work and we have collaboration and we produce things. That, that, that's what cities are, right? You live in one. <laughs> you go down your street. People are working and moving and going. Heaven will not be an eternal vacation retirement. It's going to be perfect existence of work and rest and production and vacation. A lot of the rhythms that we have here on earth, I believe, will be in heaven just in a redeemed, reclaimed state. Imagine the most satisfying day of work you've ever had. Where everything went right. No one got in an argument. Everything was uh, great and seemed to go just like you'd like it. I don't know if you've ever had that day before, but just imagine that it could happen. That will be work in heaven. That the things that we do will have uh, no drudgery, no labor, 
no toil, but all just like, it'll be perfectly flowing. And we'll have the eternal satisfaction in Christ as we reflect our creator in his new city as we create, cultivate, and expand God's good creation. The work we do here, in one sense or another, will matter forever. There is no gray area. Will it matter in a heavenly sense or not? The work and the skills that you learn here on earth will follow you to heaven. When, you, when, we, go, when we, we go to heaven, we won't be wiped clean. It's not like this, we're just completely made uh, a different person. We don't remember anything at all. But we will retain things and be us in the new heaven. And so the way that you, the habits you're developing, the ideas and, and all these things that you're coming up with, although they will be renewed and reclaimed and redeemed by Christ, you will be you. Makes you really consider how you're using the life that you have. If the things you're doing now will continue for forever. That's why working and living for God's glory, and Paul is just so adamant about that, doing what we do for God's glory, because in the end, that's what's going to matter. 97,000. 760 hours may seem like a long time to dedicate to your job. And it is. It's a chunk of life. There's no doubt. But if we put a little perspective on it, that 11 years is tiny compared to the time that we'll spend forever with our Father in heaven. The thousands, millions, billions, trillions of years that we'll spend in heaven. So use what you have here. Not for here. But use what you have here for there. Use what you, time you've been given here to prepare for eternity. The way you'll spend forever with God. Make those 11 years count for the next forever years. So a couple of questions you might want to ask yourself today as we finish this up. How is my job making a difference today? Because I think as long as it's Honest work, your job can be making a true difference today. So how is it making a difference today? How am I loving my neighbor? How am I cultivating the garden that God wants in the beginning? How, what am I doing now to help today? Next question, how is my job making a difference in eternity? How, am what I, how is what I'm doing here going to matter there? How will the habits and disciplines that I'm making now, will those things that I'm doing now, the way, the, the way in which I'm working, will that make sense in heaven? Or is that, am I working in a way that isn't heavenly? Am I working in, uh, like um, my work matters for eternity? Am I doing it for Christ? Am I, am I thinking that he's my main boss, he's my main focus, that I, I, I follow Christ in everything? And then this is kind of a fun one to think about. Maybe something we'll talk about in community group. But what will your job look like in the new heavens and the new earth? What will what you do now, if you were to take some of the skills that you learned on earth, it doesn't mean you do that forever. You're not like stuck in something. I imagine that heaven's gonna be like life. Like you can move and you can learn new things. You're going to be learning new things. But just like the skills that you have now, what would that look like in the new heavens and the new earth? Think about those this week, particularly as you go into your community groups. But today... 
Some of you are living life like this is all there is. Some of you are living that, that way, and it makes sense sometimes, but there are nights when you look up at the ceiling and you think to yourself, this can't be all there is, because if this is all there is, this is hopeless. Every new promotion or raise that you get, maybe it fulfills you for a moment, but you're just left eventually wanting more. I'm here to tell you today, this is not all there is. That Jesus came to not just reclaim the work we do, but to reclaim you. He came because he loved you and God chose to send his son to earth to do the work that changes everything. The work on the cross that he completed 2,000 years ago allows you to have life. Allows you to not just have life here, but have life forever. That he took your sin and he took my sin, all the things we've done wrong, all the ways we've hurt God, all the ways we've hurt other people. He took it on himself and he died. And when he died, sin died with him. And he offers us that purity and that forgiveness. And he says, I died for you. But he didn't stay dead. As we read earlier, he rose from the grave and proved once and for all that he was who he said he was and that he conquered sin and death forever. Some of you, God's been talking to you. He's been wooing you as we talked about earlier and you came to church today and he's still in the midst of that. Jesus gives you a choice. Will you follow him? Will you turn from the direction that you're currently going that you, if you're honest with yourself, just know isn't working? And follow him. The Bible says that receiving eternal life is as simple as believing that Jesus died and resurrected from the dead and then turning and following him. And that's what it comes down to. Simple, but very difficult. <laughs> it's not a hard thing. I mean, it's a very hard thing. It's not a hard thing to understand, but it's a very hard thing to do. But today I challenge you. If you've never made that decision before, would you come and follow Jesus Christ today? Let's pray. Father, today we are um, just so thankful for all that you do for us, God, that you have come not just to reclaim our work, but to reclaim us. And God, may we live in that and, and know that you have, um, you've worked powerfully uh, in, in so many lives and in our life, God. And for those that you're calling to yourself today, I pray that they would respond in obedience to you. God, for those that are struggling right now, struggling with purpose, struggling with life, struggling with work, God, may you renew in them a, um, just a purpose and meaning to what they do. And they could find that in you and nowhere else. That they could base you in the foundation of what they do. That they wouldn't be building a foundation of straw or, or uh, sticks or anything like that, God. But they would be building a foundation on you, Jesus Christ. And that through you, God, that you would, you would reclaim and redeem and renew all there is about their life and that they could find who they are in you. God, we love you. We depend on you. And we thank you for all that you do. Continue to work in our lives this week. In Jesus' name.